Amen. If you have a Bible, you will want it open. We're going to work through several verses tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 26. Uh, I've titled this section, this study tonight, Meaning, Toil, and Death. Meaning, Toil, and Death. I want to start with a quote from a man named Phil Riken. Philip Riken uh, is formerly the pastor of a very historic church, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and he served there uh, after James Montgomery Boyce. He is now the president at Wheaton College, and he says this, The quest for knowledge is one of our God-given tasks. As people made in the image of God, we cannot help but ask the ultimate questions. Even people who deny God's existence keep searching for the meaning of their existence. So I just want to start off with you tonight thinking about meaning and purpose. What is the meaning of life? What is our purpose on the earth? I think if you went back not that long ago in American history, you would find not that everyone in the United States was just faithfully an orthodox Christian in their faith and their theology, but I think what you would find is that most of the people in the United States at least shared the broad framework of a Judeo-Christian worldview. And that worldview gave shape to generally what you would say is a common understanding of the meaning of life, of the purpose of life. Again, I'm not saying if you go back in time, everyone used to be a Christian, everyone used to have all their doctrinal ducks in a row. I'm just saying that there was a broad worldview shared by most Americans where we understood sort of generally that there was a God and what it meant to be a human being and what the purpose of life was and what family was and all of these big picture things. That worldview has eroded quickly. It is no longer the dominant worldview in the West, in Western Europe or in the United States of America. And with the erosion of that worldview, you have also seen the erosion of a general consensus about meaning or purpose. And one of the things you see today is that people cannot help but find some sort of meaning or purpose for their life. If it's not going to be in the broad contours of what we might call a Judeo-Christian worldview, it's going to be something else. And if you've ever watched the news over the last 10, 15 years or so and seen people so fanatical about whatever brand of activism is popular at the moment, ecological activism, race activism, political activism, whatever is the hot button thing, you see people who are absolutely consumed and obsessed with it and you say, why are these people so committed to that? It's because they don't have anything else in their life giving meaning and purpose and direction and human beings will find something, anything to give meaning and purpose and direction to their lives. It's part of being created, as Riken says, in the image of God, that we are meaning-seeking people. And if we don't find it from God in the Scriptures, we will find it somewhere in the world. So one of the things that I try to do as a pastor is when I have the opportunity, the responsibility to speak at a funeral, I often try to talk about the meaning of life. And 
So many times in the last 10 to 15 years as I've preached funerals, I've found myself wanting to talk about the book of Ecclesiastes. And to be honest with you, one of the the main passages that I will talk about when I talk about Ecclesiastes in a funeral setting is the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Verses that talk about the meaning of life, the purpose of life. What is the meaning of life? What is a good life? What does it look like? Where can you find satisfaction and joy and contentment in life? Those are important questions, and they're questions that people are wrestling with when they come face-to-face with mortality, their own or a loved one's or a friend's. Now, I'll just give you the spoiler alert to Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 as we talk about the meaning of life. It's a tough passage. It's kind of like you open your Bible and out comes a hand with a cup of cold water and it throws it right in your face. And then about the time you wipe your face off, a page comes from the other hand and just slaps you across the face. And you just, you're sort of staggered and you don't know what to do. And I'm just telling you from the outset, this is a tough passage, but there's hope at the end. So don't give up as we're going through this passage. We're starting in Ecclesiastes 1.12. We're going all the way through the end of chapter 2, and it's hard. And there's things in these verses that we would rather not think about, but if you make it to the end, there's hope. Now, before we talk about the big idea and read, I just want to draw your attention to Ecclesiastes 1.3. I just want to remind you, we talked about this last week, Ecclesiastes 1.3 is the central question for the whole book. So if you like to make notes in your Bible, Ecclesiastes 1.3 is a verse you circle and you underline and you highlight and you put a star by it and an exclamation point and you say, this is what the whole book is about. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? How can you come out ahead At the end of your life, how can you find gain with all your toil? Remember we talked about that word gain last week and we talked about toil last week. Toil doesn't just mean your 8 to 5, your 9 to 5, the place where you clock in and clock out your work, your career, your profession. Toil means anything and everything you do in life. How can you come out ahead at the end considering all the things that you do in your life Things that you do under the sun. And we talked about last week, that is less about a place and it's more about a time. The sun is how we mark time. And so we're doing all of these things under the sun. It rises and it sets. It rises and it sets. Time is going by. We have all of this toil. How can we find gain? And the conclusion, at least the initial conclusion to the book, is actually in verse 2. The conclusion comes before the question, which seems backward to us, but you didn't write the book, so you don't get a vote in that. The conclusion comes first. Vanity, vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we talked about that word vanity. It's the Hebrew word hebel, and it literally means breath, smoke, vapor, mist. And I told you that I think vanity is a bit too pessimistic on the translation, that it adds in some interpretation to the translation of that word. And I told you, I think the better idea in that word hebel is something that is here and then it's gone. It's fleeting. 
you cannot hold on to it. It's here, and then it's gone. So, that's the governing question and the governing conclusion of the book. Here's the big idea of our passage. Thinking about gain. Life on earth is not gain. It's not gain. But it is a gift. Your life on earth, all your toil under the sun, it's not gain. But it's a gift. So we're not being pessimistic. We're not really being optimistic. We're just being realists. Life on earth is not gain, but it's a gift. I read a quote this week. I didn't share it with you. I don't have it up on the screen, but it's from Martin Luther. Luther was talking about Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. And Luther said, if you can understand Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, you understand the whole book. This is the part you've got to get right. If you get this part right, everything else in the book, it's not easy and it's not simple and it's not always completely obvious, but you'll have a place to let everything else file in. So let's dig in. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to read a long stretch here and then we're going to walk through it. Ecclesiastes 1.12, and we're going to read all the way through 2.11. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it uh, all, behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this is also but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep 
from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. As we work through that passage, you're paying attention for some of the the key words. You're listening for the word toil. You're listening for the word gain. You're thinking about under the sun or under heaven. And you're thinking about this idea of vanity. Here's where we need to start. The preacher's search for meaning did not begin with the fear of the Lord. And instead it centers on the self. You can look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 is one example that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Instead, what the author of Ecclesiastes did, what the preacher did, is he said to himself. He said in his heart. Throughout the verses that we just read, he's having a running conversation with himself. He's talking to himself. He doesn't begin with the fear of the Lord, but he begins with with the self. Now I realize that in verse 13 there is a reference to God. There's a reference to God in verse 13. But as you read these opening verses of our passage, it's really just sort of a passing reference and the comment that he makes is that God has given the children of the man uh, children of man activity and business to be busy with and it's unhappy. So it's not like he's beginning here with the fear of the Lord. He's beginning with the self, and only later does he circle back and talk about God at the end of this passage. So, in the verses we read, 112 through the middle of 2, let's just identify the places that he looks. Where does he look for gain? Where does he look to come out ahead? Where does he look for meaning and purpose? And on the outset, I'm just going to tell you, we will not give equal time to all of these, but we will mention all of these in list form. So the first place he looks is education. Education. He talks about this in verse 12 to 18. It's a lengthy passage. He sets out to be an educated man. And I'll just help you make some connections. This section here works like a chiasm. The beginning lines up with the end. Then the next part lines up with the second to last, and then the middle is the main conclusion. So if you look at verse 13, he says, life on earth is an unhappy business. You circle to the end of this section, verse 18, and he says, in much wisdom, there is much vexation. Sometimes once you know something, you can't unknow it. This is why sometimes we talk about Ignorance is bliss. This is why sometimes you think to yourself, I just wish I could go back to the third grade when I didn't know all of the stuff that I know. And we talk about the innocence of children. When a Christian talks about the innocence of a child, they're not saying that that child is without sin or without a sin nature. They're just saying there's a lot they don't know yet. And once you know it, you can't unknow it. I remember my eighth grade science teacher Mr. Danny Dawson. Every day in middle school, I ate a corn dog. 
And then one day I went to science class and Mr. Dawson showed us a video about how hot dogs were made. (laughs) You can't unknow that, can you? You can get over it in ninth grade, but as an eighth grader, I was done with the corn dogs. Once you know it, you know it. Now, that's a silly example, but you understand this is a weighty thing when it comes to human suffering and pain and loss and grief in life. Once you know it, it's not like you can just push a button and rewind and unknow it. In much knowledge, there is much vexation. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 goes with verse 16 and 17. Verse 14, he says, life on earth is like chasing the wind. You're just chasing the wind. You're never going to get there. He's thinking about education. This is an unhappy business. The more you know, the more miserable you are. You're just chasing the wind. Verse 17, we're still chasing the wind. There's always something else to learn. If you make any advancement in learning in your life in any subject, you get to the point where you say, I don't know much at all. I used to think I had a pretty good handle on things. Now I just know how much I don't know. I'm not there yet. I haven't figured it all out. I'm just chasing the wind. That's what education's like. It's just chasing the wind. I'm not telling you don't be educated. I'm just telling you that's what it's like. The more you learn, the more you study, the more you read, there's always something else out there to learn, to study, to read. The heart of this passage is in verse 15, and he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. That's a poetic verse. That's why the ESV sets it off with a different format. And it's a poetic way of saying this. Just because you can diagnose a problem doesn't mean the problem's solved. Just because you can look at the United States of America and say that's a problem doesn't mean the problem gets fixed, right? It's crooked. You can't make it straight. You can learn. You can understand. You can have great insight and wisdom. But it doesn't fix What's wrong in the world? It doesn't fix us. What's crooked cannot be made straight. So he looks for meaning in education. I'll just say one more thing about education. As somebody who has gone to school for a long time in his life, you can go to school and you can change the letters after your name, but the letters after your name don't change you. Not at all. None. So he looks, number one, for meaning in education. Number two, he looks for meaning in pleasure. Meaning in pleasure. Verse one is interesting. He says in his heart, you see he's still talking to himself. We're not, we've not started with the fear of the Lord. We're just with the self. What we can conjure up. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Now, I'm just going to very briefly circle back to the question of who wrote this book. We talked about it last week. If it is Solomon, you think that it was Solomon, that's an interesting word. Because there's a story about Solomon in 1 Kings 10 where a queen from Sheba came to test Solomon. She came to test him. If Solomon's the author, now he's saying, I'm going to test myself. What's the test? Well, it's not an intellectual matter. We've already tried that. This is the question of pleasure. Pleasure. Everyone 
everyone tries this. Everyone doesn't try it in the same way. But everyone left to themselves tries this. To test their heart, can you find gain, meaning, purpose in life with pleasure? Let me share a quote with you from a man named Blaise Pascal. I've thought about this quote 10,000 times since I first read it in college. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Just think about it. All men seek happiness. All people seek happiness. C.S. Lewis reached essentially the same conclusion, except he took this conclusion one step further. Lewis says this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, if I'm looking for pleasure and I can't seem to find it, there's an itch that I just can't seem to scratch, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I can't satisfy it in this world, but I have this longing, nagging desire for pleasure, for happiness, maybe I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Now with the Lewis quote, we're cheating. We're going all the way to the end of chapter 2. All men seek happiness. All people seek happiness. They do it in different ways, but they all seek happiness. Notice what the preacher says. He connects, in Ecclesiastes 2, 1 and 2, he connects pleasure and laughter. Pleasure and laughter. Do you think Americans look to pleasure and laughter? Do we watch many sitcoms? Do we pay to go watch comedies at the movie theater? Do we go watch stand-up comedy acts? Do we scroll TikTok? Do we like to watch videos of children and old people falling on the ice? And we giggle at those, right? Why do we do that? Laughter. We're looking for it. Does it work? Will it, will it give you the gain that you're looking for in life? Laughter? I don't know. Ask these guys. Robin Williams, John Candy, John Belushi, Chris Farley. Did laughter deliver for them, any of them? Do you know how their stories ended? They all ended terribly. Terribly. And we see those guys' faces and our initial reaction is to laugh because they're funny. It was just Christmas season. My favorite of those four is John Candy, hands down. You can have all the other guys. I think John Candy's the best. He's got the little cameo in Home Alone at the end where he's the, the polka guy in the van and he's helping her get home and everything he does is hilarious. He's funny. If you've ever seen Uncle Buck, it's the funniest movie ever made. It's hilarious. These guys all ended not laughing. Not laughing. So he looks for pleasure and then he moves on, verse 3, to wine. To wine. 
searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. You understand when he talks about wine here, he's talking about alcohol. And you understand applying this to our day and age, this would include marijuana, use of Vicodin, edibles, LSD, fentanyl, I mean, whatever you want to put in the bucket here. That's what we're talking about, substances, something that will alter chemically the way that I feel. Did that work? It didn't work. He moves on and he talks about great works, verse 4, 5, and 6, the things that he built, the things that he created. I think when you read the list of things in verse 4, 5, and 6, it's not so much about having the things as accomplishing the accomplishment. I had something to put my name on, something to be proud of, something I built with my own two hands. That's a very American idea, building and creating. He moves on to possessions, verse 6, 7, and 8. Slaves, herds, flocks, money, lots of possessions. Would that give me gain, meaning, purpose, and life? You read this list of things, and maybe again you think of Solomon, and you think of Solomon's great wealth, and maybe you say to yourself, I can't really relate to Solomon when it comes to the wealth stuff. I don't know that I've fully tried that like Solomon fully tried it. Maybe if I could win that 1.25 billion mega millions jackpot out there, then I could give this a shot. But I don't, know if I, I don't know if I really can say that I've tried this one. Look, you can play with numbers and make Americans feel guilty about all kinds of things. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty in what I'm about to show you. Let me just give you a little thought experiment based on the real numbers. If you took the world's population and you reduced it to 100 people, okay, you just said... All the people on the earth keep the demographics and the breakdowns the same. There's 100 people, just for the sake of understanding in our brains. Eight billion is hard to wrap your mind around. A hundred you can wrap your mind around. There's 100 people on the earth. The way that wealth is divided today, only one out of 100 would spend 90 bucks a day. The rest would spend less than that. And the vast majority would spend vastly less than that. So that's $32,850 a year. If you spend $32,850 a year, and maybe not everyone in this room does that, but if you do, individually, $32,000, you are a one percenter when it comes to wealth. So I understand you can look around the world and you can say, well, Bill Gates has more than me and you know, Bezos has more than me and Zuckerberg has more than me and Musk has more, all these guys have more. I understand that. But you're a one percenter. If you're not a one percenter, you are certainly a two percenter as you look at the way these numbers break down. He looks for possessions. Lastly, he looks for song and sex, looking for meaning in song and sex. He says, I got singers. Why would he get singers? They don't, hadn't invented Spotify yet. They didn't have streaming music. They didn't have eight-track tapes. They didn't have Record players, they didn't have uh, anything. If you wanted to hear music, somebody had to come and give you the music. So he said, I tried that. Arts, the music. People like music today? They love music. Stream songs all day long. We listen to songs everywhere we go in public places. People pay outrageous amounts of money, myself included, to go to concerts. Sex. 
I know that we're a sex-crazed society. The internet is just gasoline on that fire, but it's not anything new. Ecclesiastes 1, there's nothing new under the sun. People have been looking in these places for meaning and purpose for an awful long time. So he looks for song, he looks for sex, he's looking for meaning. These are just human issues. Here's a quote from David Gibson, Living Life Backward. It says, in our day, we're submerged beneath an abundance of trivia and our fully wired, always connected, completely digitized world of social media, limitless sources of entertainment. The preacher would not have been negative about any of these things in themselves. He would simply ask us if we can cope with looking death in the eye or, here's the kicker, or whether we're trying to live in bubbles we think will never burst. The reality is that if death doesn't inform the way we live, then death is something we're pretending doesn't exist. We talked about this last week. One out of one dies. And the call of Ecclesiastes is to live life backward. And a lot of you have talked with me in the last week about what that means. What does it actually mean to live life backwards? The beginning step is to acknowledge in your heart, in your mind, someday I'm going to die. That will happen. And then to look back on your life and to evaluate the way that you're living in light of that reality. And I don't mean to be opportunistic. I don't mean to try to scare anybody. I would just remind you that last week we were praying for someone who lost a loved one unexpectedly. And in the room was Jimmy Johnston. And he woke up Thursday morning and he studied his Sunday school lesson, Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and 4. Smoke. Vapor, mist. If we're trying to live in bubbles we think will never burst, then death is something that we're pretending doesn't exist. So that brings us to Ecclesiastes 2, verse 9 and 11. We read these verses. We'll just read them again. This is where he gets to the conclusion. It says, I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done the toil that I had expended in doing it. You understand what the toil is? It's everything we just talked about. It's all the stuff that he looked for meaning in. Behold, it was all vanity. It was here, then it was gone. It was all vanity. It was striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. The preacher concluded, all the key words are here, that his toil, all of his toil, is nothing but vanity and chasing the wind. He insists that there is nothing to gain under the sun. The verse that we just read in 2.11 is direct, directly related to the verse I drew your attention to at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 3. All those same words are there. And he's just trying to connect the dots for you and help you understand how this plays out. He looks at his toil, everything that he's done. And he says, the English translation is, it's vanity. And what we hear is, it's a waste. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying it's all a waste. He's just saying it's all that fleeting. 
Okay? Let's just go to the song example. I got singers. People love to go to concerts today. They love going to concerts. And people go to concerts. Have you ever just watched people at concerts? They lose their mind. People that sit in music services in church like this and frown, like they look like flaming Pentecostals, arms waving, singing loud, dancing around. Like they they go crazy. People love music. And people go to a concert of their favorite band. They do not leave the concert and say, that was vanity. They leave and they say, it's already over. They didn't play all my favorites. Like we were there and it's, now we're gone. When people go on vacation to a beautiful place, they don't come home and say it was all vanity, it was all a waste, it was all meaningless. What do they say? It's gone. We were there, the week was over. We blinked and it, it passed by. That's what he's saying when he thinks about all his toil. He's not saying it was worthless. He's just saying it doesn't last. And it doesn't give me the meaning and the, the purpose that I'm looking for, the gain that I'm looking for. Maybe you remember an interview in 2005, 60 Minutes. How many of you like to watch 60 Minutes? I think it was Mike Wallace. He's interviewing Tom Brady, 2005. Tom Brady had just won his third. You remember when Tom Brady had only won three Super Bowls? He just won his third Super Bowl. Three Super Bowls. And he sits down for a 60 Minutes interview, and the interviewer is asking him all sorts of stuff, and how do you feel about being a three-time Super Bowl champion? And Tom Brady says, I don't know, I'm just kind of wondering, is this it? And the interviewer said, well, what's the answer? Is that it? And you want to hear a sad response. Tom Brady said, I wish I knew. Three Super Bowls, that's pretty good. But man, I mean, when they're over, they're over. It's gone. Done. Now what? Now where do I look for meaning or purpose or satisfaction? gain. Where do I try to find these things? He didn't know. He didn't have an answer. It's kind of like a teenager. This is the 60 minutes demographic here in this room. Upstairs, you've got the youth. You've got the video game demographic. If you want to put it in terms of video games for your kids or your grandkids, it's kind of like you buy this video game and you go on this quest and you beat the game. So then what do you do? You get another game. And you pop it in and you beat that game. Then what do you do? Well, then you get another game. And you just, you just try to keep going. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 12. This is where he begins to explain his conclusion. 2.12. Let's just read it. I turned to consider wisdom and madness, and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. Then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. 
Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart also, this is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for it's all vanity and striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who didn't toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Preacher reached this pessimistic conclusion because of one terrifying, unavoidable certainty, and that's death. Now, I promise you we're going to get to the end of this chapter, and it's going to be better. There's going to be some really amazing truths. We're not to the bottom of the well yet. so You've got to go down a little bit deeper. Death. Chapter 2, verse 15, the same event will happen to the preacher and to the fool. You understand what that event is, right? It's death, one out of one. Look what he says in verse 16a. Why have I been so wise? What's going to happen to the fool will happen to me. Verse 16, for the wise is of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. We're all going to be forgotten. All of us. And when I say that, maybe those of you who the wheels are turning are say, well, not all of us, not George Washington, not Abraham Lincoln, you know, not Albert Einstein. And I would just push back to those of you who are thinking that way and say, what we remember are the things those people did. And we have a name attached to it but we don't remember them. We remember first president of the United States, and we have a name that goes with that. Do you remember what it was like to sit and have tea with George Washington? Do you remember what his voice sounded like? We remember things that people do sometimes. There's no lasting remembrance of them. Ancestry.com gives us this illusion that we know all our ancestors. We don't know them. There's no real remembrance of them. Verse 16 ends how the wise dies, just like the fool. Verse 17 is dark. He says, I hated life because what's done under the sun was a grievous, uh, was grievous to me, for it's all vanity and it's all striving after the wind. I told you last week my Old Testament professor was a guy named Dwayne Garrett. He says this, the teacher reveals his bitter disappointment in life. It had, in effect, played a trick on him. 
And we talked last week about the fact that Christians are not people who pretend that some of this stuff isn't true. Christians aren't the people that just open another Hallmark card and fake a smile and it all gets better. But Christians are people who have the intellectual and the emotional and the spiritual integrity to deal with these things and to face these things as truth. This disappointment can be crushing, but Jesus warned about it. I'll just read this quickly. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you understand, based on the list we read earlier, that could be song, that could be sex, that could be education, that could be possessions, that could be accomplishments, that could be any number of things. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The eyes of the lamp of the body. If your eyes healthy, your whole body will be full of light. What do you set your eyes on? What are you pursuing? Chasing. If your eyes healthy, your whole body's full of light. If your eyes bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If you set your sights in the wrong direction, it affects all of you. If you miss the meaning of life, it affects every part of you. To lighten you as darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other. Or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So that's the first part of what we just read, 2, 12 to 17. Here's the second part. The preacher felt hatred toward his toil under the sun because death meant that someone else would receive and possibly squander the fruit of his labor. Verse 18 and 19, I hated my toil. Because I realized I was going to die, and I realized that a fool might take over my empire. One of my hobbies is mowing grass. I know people don't like mowing grass. A lot of people in Odessa don't like mowing grass. I like mowing grass. I like watering grass. I like mowing grass. I like standing in the front window and looking at my nicely mowed grass. love everything about it. And when you like something like that, you pay attention to other people's grass. When I moved here in 2014, there was a house. I drove by it this week just to confirm. There was a house. Uh, it was on Grandview, just on this side of Optimus Park and a little bit south. And it had one of the best lawns in Odessa. I mean, it was amazing. They watered that thing. They mowed that thing. They did the edging. It was beautiful. And then one day, out in the middle of that nice green yard, there was a for sale sign. And then a couple weeks later, the for sale sign went away and there was a U-Haul. And then the U-Haul went away and there was another U-Haul. And then whoever moved in in that second U-Haul quit watering. And what happens in Odessa if you don't water your grass? You don't have grass. There's no grass there. Now, I'm not saying that's a moral thing. That's not a moral thing, and that's not what I'm saying to you. But I'm just saying, you can water that grass and mow that grass and love that grass, and random people that you don't know can admire that grass and think that that's the most beautiful thing, and in two weeks, that grass can be gone. He hated his toil because a fool might take over his empire. Verse 20 and 21 is a, the flip side of that. What if I just die and I leave it to someone who didn't work for it? They didn't 
invest the blood, sweat, and tears. They just inherit it all. The preacher says, that's not a great scenario either. They didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. They, they don't have any respect for it. You've heard the old saying, you can go to Permian and see which kids bought their own car by how they drive over speed bumps. They didn't buy their own car. They just flew over that speed bump. They're not invested in it. They just got it. That's what he's talking about. And again, I'm not saying it's a moral or an immoral thing to buy your kid a car or not. I'm just saying he's looking at all the things that he's accomplished, and he said, I can just pass this down to somebody else. They didn't have to do anything for it. They just get it. That doesn't seem like a great deal. Verse 23, here's the big conclusion. All his days, our days, man's days, are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. It's a vanity. Now, that's the bottom. And when you get to the end of that verse, you almost expect to look over and find someone like Frederick Nietzsche. God is dead. There is no meaning. Do whatever you want. Nothing matters. Just make it all up as you go. Do whatever makes you happy. Just, you're going to die. Deal with it. That's sort of the philosophy Nietzsche embraced in a roundabout way. He went crazy at the end of his life. Maybe that was because of the philosophy embraced. Maybe it was because of other things. I don't know. But that's what you expect, and it's not what you find. And this last little section is one of the sections in Ecclesiastes why I say to you I don't think vanity or meaningless is the best translation of Hebel. I don't think that's the best translation because just when it gets really dark, you see passages like this. Ecclesiastes 2, 24, 25, 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. Wait a minute. Verse 23. Sorrow, vexation, vanity. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat, drink, find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity. And it's striving after the wind. Now, in this passage, I told you, way back in chapter 1, verse 13, there's this passing reference to God. God has given us this unhappy business. And all the rest of what we read from 1.12 all the way through 2.23 did not begin with the fear of the Lord. It was just the preacher talking to the preacher. I said to myself, I said to my heart, I'm testing myself, I'm doing this myself, I'm looking for myself, I'm reflecting myself. And now, at the very end, there's this breakthrough, and the breakthrough is that all of a sudden he's talking about God, verse 25. He's talking about Him, that's God, in verse 25, and he mentions Him at the end of 24, verse 26, he's talking about the one who pleases God, and again in verse 26, the one who pleases God. It's a completely different mindset in these last few verses. And the difference is that God shows up. 
all of a sudden in these last few verses, he stepped back and now he's thinking about God. And so what I want to do quickly is walk through a few more truths. And as we walk through these truths, we're not going to chase all these rabbits and look up all these verses. I've given them to you and you can chase them if you really want wisdom. If you don't, you don't have to. You can go watch people falling on TikTok. But you can seek it if you want to seek it. And what I want to remind you in this last little section of the notes is Ecclesiastes is not the first book in the Bible. There's other stuff before it that helps you understand it. And it's not the last book in the Bible. And there's other stuff that comes after it that helps you understand it. So now we're going to look at this last little section of hope and try to surround it with some biblical truth. Okay, truth one, God is a working God who created humans, who created work, and who created humans to work. He's a working God. Genesis 1, He created humans. And He created work. And He created the human beings to work. We don't work because we live in a fallen world. We work because God is a working God and He created us to work. And by work, I'm talking about toil, all the things you do under the sun. God gave Adam and Eve manual work, keep the garden, use your hands and your back and your legs, physical work. God created physical work. He thinks it's a good idea. And God created mental work. He took Adam and he said, I want you to look at these animals and I want you to use your brain. I put a brain inside your head and I want you to think about what we're going to call all of them. Use your brain and think about it. God created mental work. Mental work is not more noble than physical work. Physical work is not more noble than mental work. They're both work. And God created all of it. And he created human beings to work. The problem is not the work. The problem is not the toil. The problem is sin. The problem is always sin. Adam's sin brought death into the world. That's a major topic in Ecclesiastes. Where in the world did it come from? Adam's sin brought death into the world and futility to work. Adam was taken from the dust and after he sinned, what did God say? You're going back to the dust. That's Hebel. That's vanity. I took you from the dust, you'll go back to the dust. God said to Adam, your work will involve thorns and thistles and the sweat of your brow. It's going to be different than it was before sin entered the world. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be discouraging. That's the essence of vanity in Ecclesiastes. Phil Riken, I started with a quote from Phil Riken. Here's one more quote from Riken. He says, the world is not enough. Ecclesiastes does not show us this to make us discouraged or depressed, but to drive us back to God. This is not all there is. We're made for another world. You see the pull from the C.S. Lewis quote. We're made from another world for another world. There is a God in heaven who sent his son to save us and then to satisfy us. And what Riken is saying is that we are not stuck toiling under this curse. We're not stuck in Genesis 3. There's a way out of Genesis 3 and there's a way out of the vanity that we've been reading about in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. Here it is. The second Adam 
willingly subjected himself to death and, if you will, quote, vanity by taking the curse upon himself, he defeated sin and death for his people. You understand, when you move to the New Testament, that in the history of mankind, there was one man, one person who never sinned. Never. And he was not subject to death. Death was not coming for him by rights. Hebel had no claim on him. Vanity, meaningless, had no claim on him. And yet, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is that God made that man to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And what Paul says in Galatians 3.13 is that God cursed that man for us so that we would not be cursed. Jesus took death and vanity in the place of his people. When you understand the gospel of what Jesus did for his people, you go back to Ecclesiastes and you read it differently than if you don't know the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So, for those who are in Christ, here we go. To die is gain. And to live means fruitful labor or toil. That's straight out of Philippians 1. And that perspective of death being gain, but living meaning fruitful toil is only for those who are in Christ. And do you see how the gospel takes Ecclesiastes and it flips it on its head? What can man gain from all his toil under the sun? Nothing. Nothing. Why? Why why can't we gain anything? Because we're all going to die. And then here's this crazy missionary Jew from Tarsus, Paul, planting churches, saying things like, guess what? Because of the good news of Jesus Christ, if you die, it's gain. There's your gain. And if you live, if you don't die yet, but you live, it's not just vanity and meaningless toil, fleeting work but it's fruitful labor. Now, I want to acknowledge verse 25. I think uh, verse 25 and verse 26 are the hardest verses in this passage. Apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? The one who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. The first time I read that, it sounded like Job's friends. It sounded like if you're a good person, God's going to give you a lot of good stuff if you please God. But if you're a bad person, if you're a sinner, God's going to take all your stuff and he's going to give it to the good people. That's what it sounded like to me the first time I read it. And I thought, wait a minute, that doesn't, wait a minute. Think about this. That's not how life works. You know that's how, not how life works. Job knew that wasn't how life works. Asaph in Psalm 73 knows that's not how life works. The wicked prosper. So that can't mean that. And I think you've got to understand to the sinner, verse 26, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. When you read that word sinner, think about when you were a child and someone was trying to explain sin to you and they said to you, the word sin means you missed the mark. 
The sinner is the person who has set their eyes in the wrong direction when it comes to the meaning of life. They're not going to find joy. They're going to look and look and look, but they're not going to find it. It's going to be taken from them. They've missed the mark. They've looked in the wrong place. But to the one who pleases God, what he gets is not a fat bank account. It's not front row tickets to his favorite concert. It's not all the list of things that we talked about earlier. What he gets is joy. Find enjoyment in your toil. How do you get enjoyment from your toil? Well, it's from the hand of God. That's verse 24. Apart from God, apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Well, nobody. Only people who receive that from God. Those who sin, those who miss the mark, those who set their life in the wrong direction or trajectory, they're not going to find that. But to the person who pleases God, the person who begins with the fear of the Lord, God will give them this. So we end with this last gospel truth. Those who are in Christ, for those who are in Christ, there is a future in a redeemed world with redeemed work. And you can read about that in Revelation 21 and 22. No more toil, no more vanity, no more death, no more thorns, no more curse. 